Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation, a laid-back podcast where we discuss everything from cool animals, conservation, the environment, and what we can do to help. I'm Robert Pike, a field journalist for the Global Conservation Force, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Veal, a world-renowned rhino conservationist and president of the Global Conservation Force. We're rolling. Cool. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Conservation. Now, this is uh, a little bit of a break between our last episode. We do apologize for that, but we are hitting the ground strong. We're hitting the ground running. We've got two really good guests ahead of us. Mike and I are in good spirits. We're really excited. We're going to meet uh, these two leading edge names in conservation and anti-poaching. So this is going to be a really fun episode. We're really going to enjoy it. Mike, it's always a pleasure to see you again. Um, he is currently at the Bucks and he is going to be ready. We're going to have a really, really good, fun episode ahead of us. It's going to be um, jam packed. So please stick with us and we're going to have a great time with another episode of Coffee and Conservation. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. Um, <clears throat> I think for starters, want to say that this is going to be a, an adult podcast. Um, this is not going to be for our younger audiences. We do say this in some of our intros just because uh, the content. The level of conservation topics and then just the general discussion is probably going to not be uh, appropriate for your younger listeners. Mm -hmm. um, that said, <clears throat> just a forewarning, um, again, I'm stoked to be back on. Uh, things have been so busy that uh, we've actually had a lot of people reaching out to say, hey, can we do this, that, or the other? And mm -hmm. they have been really cool trying to push us back, but um, happy to be back. And we are ready to kind of push in. So this is probably going to end up being a two-part episode. <clears throat> and I say that just because um, we're lucky enough to have two of, two of who I call some of my best friends in the industry and longest buddies. Um, definitely two of my uh, longstanding confidants. If there's a question I have, these are my two buddies I reach out to regardless. Yeah. Um, so with that, I'm going to first introduce Hein just as a intro everybody has spoken with him before we did a we did a shout back episode a little while back um <clears throat> where hein basically uh did a storyline of how he was involved and i'm gonna introduce calvin kipling who's been with gcf since the very beginning as well so calvin um i will let him explain his own history and past but cal has been part of the shaping of gcf the field projects. He's been the lead instructor for multiple years. Um, again, when it comes to anything with what we're doing, uh, he is always in the echo chamber. So whatever we're working on, however we're scoping it and whatever we're doing, it's always bouncing across the desks or the WhatsApp inboxes of these two guys, depending on where we are in the world. Um, so with that, I'm going to pass, looks like Hein lost some reception here. I'm going to pass it to Calvin first to go ahead and Introduce who he is, how he started in the industry, and how we all came together. Cheers, Mike. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Robert's intro, how smooth it was, is quite off-putting. I'm definitely going to stutter my words and sound like a bit of an idiot here. Uh, but I'll, um, yeah, so hopefully I'm able to articulate uh, well enough exactly uh, who I am and what I do. Uh, but I trust that Robert's got some mad skills there to make me sound a lot smarter than I really am. Uh, so, yeah, so I've been... Uh, in the conservation law enforcement industry for uh, 
best part of about 10 years now. Um, I started back in 2009. I uh, grew up in Cape Town. And uh, obviously, 2008, 2009, the rhino poaching thing was uh, starting to come into play. You know, we, we all heard about it as kids at school, um, but it wasn't really a pressing conservation issue. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be very much involved in conservation my whole life. My parents uh, took us every year to uh, multiple different game reserves in South Africa, whether it was uh, the Kalahari, now known as the Kalahari National Park or Kruger National Park or any of South Africa's, you know, beautiful reserves. So I grew up with a, a real love and appreciation of, of nature and, and what it has to offer. So as soon as the whole uh, rhino poaching thing became, you know, massively prevalent in the, the early 2009-2010 point, uh, it kind of gelled very well with... I always knew that I was going to be working in the conservation industry. I always knew that's something I wanted to do. Uh, when I was young, I always thought I wanted to be, you know, what... I thought was, you know, a game ranger, someone who works in the bush, um, does all the research, does everything. Uh, but then the whole anti-poaching thing kind of really caught my eye. It involved everything I was interested in. It involved protecting animals, it involved being in nature, it involved the fitness, it involved the whole tactical side of things. Uh, but it wasn't really a big industry at the time, and people were still trying to find their feet. You know, uh, the whole training side of things, hadn't quite adapted to the, the rhino poaching uh, threat levels that were in play. It was still very much tracking snare poachers. Uh, it wasn't involved with this organized crime as it is today. So it was fairly different back then. Uh, spent a good couple of years on the ground uh, doing the older style of 16-day foot patrols, mainly looking for snare poachers, bushmeat poachers. Rhino poaching was there, but it, in the private reserves, it wasn't so busy. It was more in the Kruger National Park at that time. After about, I would say, a year and a half, two years of doing that, I started moving in towards the training side of things, uh, instructing, uh, working for a private security company, doing their training intake recruits, so uh, taking everyone from day one, week one, and passing them out six weeks later as uh, anti-poaching uh, rangers. That's how I met Mike in, I believe, 2011, 2012. My memory could be wrong. Uh, we can fact check that at, <laughs> at another time. And Mike came through uh, as a recruit. Uh, Hein is obviously with us on that one. Hein had come through prior to Mike. Uh, he'll spin his side of the story. But he had come through prior to Mike, uh, again, one of my students. And he happened to be one of my uh, helping hands on that course. Uh, Mike came through, did really, really well. I'm sure we'll delve a lot deeper into some stories of uh, what we got up to. And then, yeah, from then on out, Mike and I have been working hand in hand, helping to grow GCF, helping to uh, improve the conservation law enforcement industry. And uh, at the moment, uh, I've kind of moved slightly away from the conservation law enforcement side of things, but I'm still active in the... Uh, um, law enforcement side of things, if you want to call it that. Hundred percent. I mean, so with with that introduction, um, hi, and I'm not sure if your uh, mic is is working there. Let's give you a little mic check. I do believe it should be working. Hey, sweet. Um, let's just give everybody a rundown real quick of your crossover that timeline, because I've already got some questions that came into mind. Uh, from that timeline that matches up with this timeline. Uh, so just in case anybody didn't catch us in the 
previous uh, podcast where you were telling some of the historical, uh, I should say, like the historical highlights of how we met. Um, wh- where is your background? Where did it go? And how, how did we go from then to now with you? Okay. Yeah. Um, so I think um, with our previous podcast, we had quite a, quite a nice discussion on uh, those years where it all started. Um, yeah. Ending up uh, in the in the in the conservation area, uh, well, yeah, area there in Hoodsprate, um, and then um, yeah, Calvin, being the guy that trained me, I ended up by some luck of the draw becoming uh, one of your trainers together with Calvin. Um, so yeah, I think uh, through that podcast, I think most people should probably know uh, how I got into the the conservation side of things. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, with that uh, that time uh, of doing that podcast, obviously the, the other part of, uh, of of what I did was a little bit uh, had to stay a bit vague. Um, <laughs> but yeah, up and up until until now, uh, going out of that, um, as I said, I was I was at that time looking for a bit uh, bigger things, try to to see where I could make make a bit of a bigger difference and so on. So I ended up in the in the South African Police Service, um, which was uh, also a challenge in itself. Um, spent some time uh, in the policing realm of things um, and ended up going to the South African Police Service Special Task Force, um, doing selection, uh, passing that, and then serving in the unit, um, which is obviously quite great because. Uh, Together with everything else that you do, which is counter terror and hostage release and stuff like that, um, you also do actually get to to do a bit of um, uh, conservation work, if I could say it like that. So we did do uh, what we would call a waylay quite uh, quite a few times, like you know, um, where you could uh, end up arresting a few poachers. But that. Um, I think the the ones that got really big, uh, unfortunately, I was not on them. Uh, going for actual arrests of kingpins and stuff like that, that that's also what the unit was busy with during that time. So I must say quite a fulfilling time uh, for me personally, um, especially with conservation and stuff like that. Um, ended up uh, out of that, um, out of the police, out of the, out of the unit. Um, and then uh, that was quite uh, recently and ended up uh, getting back, well, not that we ever lost contact, but getting back together with you and uh, started uh, presenting some some ranger training uh, with you. And that's where I think uh, we are at this moment. Also, of course, together with um, Calvin, uh, started a, a company uh, where we also, like I basically, at the moment, is more active. Calvin's doing his side of the stuff. Um, he's, a, he's also one of the directors of the company and just providing a highly specialized training for, well, basically all kinds of guys that uh, is looking for very, very specialized uh, type of uh, security training, including uh, the rural side of stuff with, uh, with anti-poaching. And uh, that leaves us where we are now. So I've got my first question that lines up with this, you know, um, between the three of us, we've, been in the field for you know a, um, over 10 years each each one of us has like a, a a circular I guess a sphere of specialties and an arc of like what we are hold on is that my mic giving feedback there okay so that 
that was weird. Uh, anyways, um, basically, when it comes to all the stuff that we're talking about, um, uh, watching how the industry changed from before Rhino Pushing was a, a key moment in history to then it actually took shape from the national parks into the greater reserve areas into you know the private reserve zones, all these other things. And then it became really sophisticated and a lot more streamlined. How important do you guys feel it is to have had that experience than to be an instructor because of the variety of things that some people stand as either it's a absolute to train or it's a uh, like a matter of fact. So an example, um, the game is ever changing and in contrast, if someone had not had all those years of experience, they wouldn't have known the bag of tricks that have already been played and they wouldn't have known all the wheels that were invented, reinvented, designed, tried, failed, all of those things. So basically, why is it so important that instructors have real field experience? Uh, very good question. Um, I think this is something we have discussed quite in depth um, all of us here, yeah. and uh, it is something that's massively important. Uh, there are certain things that you can transfer knowledge-wise uh, from reading a book, watching a movie, um, you know, going, this, this is the famous one in the industry of, of people going onto YouTube and, and watching some demonstration and then just trying to replicate that in a training environment. And uh, there are certain things that you can you can portray from watching something, but Nothing can replace personal experience. Nothing can replace putting in the hard graft and learning these lessons yourself. There's no substitute for that, unfortunately. And uh, I think the reason why it is so rare is because it's difficult to work in the industry for 10 years. It's difficult to go on foot patrol and it's sweat grueling. and earn peanuts and you know leave your wife, your girlfriend, your family Um that that's that's difficult. So to gain that experience, you you, you can't pay for it. You know, it's, it's not a two week course. You can go do some way and get a certificate at the end of it. You have to put it in the hard graft. You have to commit to it, and you have to really dedicate and and commit your life to it. Yeah, now we pay it's for very, it with life. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and and possibly even give your life for it. You know, you have to be yeah. Not necessarily, I hate the word say willing to give your life because if you had to give me the choice of dying or saving a ride, I wouldn't say kill me, you know, but you are in that position where it could possibly happen. Right. Um, and now you've got a lot of organizations coming in and training has become less about uh, creating an end product and more about uh, the image of creating an end product. Unfortunately, when money comes into things, um, vision gets blurred everybody starts off with a very good um, mindset and a very good, I um, don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but they, they start off with the right mindset of how they're doing things. But as they realize training costs money, we need to recruit now. We need to get more students than other training providers. They start to lower the outcome and the product and start to make things look a little bit more prettier than they are. And uh, bottom line is, uh, unless... You have the hard graft on the miles under your feet and you've put in the time and effort. Uh, the, the end product will never, ever be anything of, of substance. And I think uh, just to throw it out there, 
anybody out there who's interested in, in doing training and looking at, at you know, perhaps becoming a, a conservation law enforcement officer or whatever the case may be, just ask your training providers what is their background. Mm-hmm. And don't just take it at face value what they say. Dig in a little bit deeper. Ask yeah. for references and, and, and just ask these questions because a lot of the organizations out there, their their uh, training trainers and training providers have very minimal experience on the ground. They've done non relevant training that doesn't apply to conservation law enforcement, and uh, a lot of them are purely lying about what they're doing as well. So, yeah, uh, there are good organisations out there. They are unfortunately not as common as one would like think like to think. But just ask the question, do your research, and um, look into it. Yeah. Hein, I think you uh, were begging to say something there. I mean, first thing that comes into play is too is um, the perception of certificates and achievement for what training is versus again out, the end output goal of what training is. So, do you have a guy who can actually do the job, or do you have a guy on paper who says he's got the title to do the job? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's definitely something uh, that you could find, um, and that's what I think. Uh, a part of what Calvin was describing there, um, having a guy on paper that can provide you with the training, um, maybe out of the book, is fine. But when it comes down to smaller nuances, uh, they just unfortunately might fall a bit short on that. So it is important to check who who are you choosing to spend uh, your money on, um, either uh, depending on how your 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 training is funded if you've got to fund it privately for yourself or if it's going through an NGO. Um, but another thing that I think is um, important to say within that that realm of training um, comes from um, the a massive reliance on, on I would say, uh, military culture or maybe even police culture. Now, I mean, myself, uh, I ended up in the police um from anti-poaching but there's a big big difference between a member of a police unit or a military unit that is only trained in conventional methods and tactics um, and people that go to highly specialized fields to train within the african bush and the rural environment and um within uh, uh um, like a higher level so that's something that I think is, is quite important. So to to find a trainer that can just throw around military experience or police experience might also not uh, always be that uh, like like it, it might not be that positive for your training because you might get trained well, but in things that don't translate to anti-poaching. Um, and I think that's definitely where I feel myself and Calvin especially. Uh, it's almost as though we had the privilege of spending that time in anti-poaching um, and then going, getting ourselves a bit of further training and having the ability to give back um, from that point to, to conservation. Um, and then also going to the right units to go and further the training that could be used in the bush and rural environments. Um, and with that said, uh, it's important to remember that you do not necessarily need to be a soldier to be an anti-poaching ranger or co- that's doing conservation. It's a completely okay. different ball game, but there's some small things that could be translated by the right people um, that could be quite positive for training. Um, and then I think the second thing that I would like to, to throw out there is, is, is also 
when when choosing your training providers for these things is do they understand how things happen in Africa how how things react how people are here how to communicate how how to to actually translate that skills that they have and and share it with people like in Africa I think that's something that I've seen and that's it's a, a massive one. problem yeah it's uh just not understanding local culture or not having local guys to explain stuff to you that that's going yeah. on around you um it is it, it everything south africa with the rest of africa remains uh, obviously a, a interesting place with diverse cultures and and stuff like that um that you need to be able to pick up on if you're going to be providing these actual ranges with good training um and a lot of small nuances like uh, which i could remember with a trainer a highly specialized trainer in firearms and tactics and it just came with how you should um switch your firearm from safe to to on fire with the ak-47 platform um it was uh, doing it with your trigger finger versus doing it with your support hand um which made a a lot of sense and in your special operations environments yes that's how you would do it with your trigger finger um but coming to the african bush with uh your local uh ranger that works with the ak47 that might be 40 years old and it's gone through how many rainy seasons and most of the time that uh you know that that little safety would be stuck there and uh that's small things that you just some you need to see um that some trainers won't pick up on and they won't find a way around teaching the proper thing so that these guys can actually when they need to get into a fight to defend their lives get into that fight even though it would be the most specialized and 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 highly uh I would say well the the most high the highly effective training that you could get but it doesn't translate always to Africa yeah I was going to say so let's let's throw me under the bus on that one that's a really good one of all the time that I've spent in the bush with different cultures um prime example uh sometimes even when I'm on a course uh I'm too busy I'm thinking about other things and I will heavily rely on you or Cal for example because you know your guys's focus is in that spot and I'm I'll miss something and on this last training segment which was really important was um we were working with an all zulu team and I was paying attention to what I was writing on the whiteboard but I had missed in the simple context of the course a very important detail that Hein caught because he was facing the group um head on and it was that one of one of the guys of a uh, you know an average age set probably I don't know in his 30s was almost trying to see what he could push on the day course with getting away with and Hein caught it Hein addressed it Hein set it straight but there it's a little nuance that was really important for uh the success of the rest of the course because I could have uh remove the platform of instructional learning and respect just because I didn't catch that and we didn't correct it in the beginning of the class where they would have just said oh well, whatever we can walk all over this guy and it was that was a prime example um and then another thing that happened in the same set with the AK47 um I do not have as much experience on the AK platform so the AK platform to me is something that I will commonly pass off and 
the a student came up to me and asked me about assisting with a stripping and reassembling of that, and I I handed it over back to Hein. And the main reason was is I'm not going to act like I know or say something on that. So I gave Hein the platform because I had seen the previous step happen where there was like a language barrier. So I wanted Hein, who has spent thousands of hours on that platform, shaping, cutting, and moving. Um, Cal, I mean, what about you, dude? I know you got a lot to say in the weapons platform world. There's a lot there. I think um, you hit the nail on the head there. And apologies if, if Hein and I are laughing at each other. I'm sending him naughty pictures on WhatsApp while we're talking. So <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so I think humility is massive. Um, and, and knowing your boundaries and knowing your limits as an instructor. Um, and I'm not going to open that message from Hein because I know it's something funny. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. sorry coming through. Uh, so yeah, I think, uh, having humility and, and knowing your, your limits and knowing your boundaries and where you need to say to the student, all right, you've asked me a question here that I don't know the answer to, let me get back to you, or let me pass this over to somebody who's possibly better versed in this subject. And, uh, what you find in the, uh, conservation law enforcement industry or, or anti-poaching as it's, it's better known, uh, is you'll get an entire course presented by one or two people. But the amount of subjects that should be presented in a full course, you know, when it comes to firearms, tracking, uh, working with the canines, uh, your rural phases, your camouflage and concealment, waylay, ambush, whatever you want to call it, for one person to be an expert in all of those will take a lifetime. You know, it's impossible. Uh, so you draw on everybody's expertise. Uh, someone like yourself, Mike, who's spent time, you know, tracking on the ground, someone like Hein who spent time, you know, with all the different weapon platforms. Uh, you, you need to draw on these individual skills, which can together come and create the, the end product. Uh, but you have to have that humility to be able to say, um, I'm not the best at doing this. This is what I've read. This is not my experience, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, massively uh, agree with you on that last one. Yeah, and it's a thing that's it's it's almost it's it's an agreed thing too that happens with your own experience where, like for example, when I want to learn something, um, of course I'm going to lean on you guys, but also like there's an instructor that we all know who's like a master tracker. I've I have been dying to learn his degree of tracking for since it was offered to me 2019 or so. Um, there's this like level though you come to where you you don't want to mistake yourself for anybody as that expert so they think that that's the end of the educational chain um there's always usually someone that's really good or better or has a different viewpoint that can make you better so that workshopping uh is extremely important when you have a collective pool of knowledge and the instructors all have a shared point of reference in it but also there's an expert in the categories of each zone because then you get these conversations too that come out where um, we all scope to a different scale again where we re we repolish something or figure out a better way to present it to those who don't understand what we're teaching or they don't they're new to it sorry robert i didn't mean to cut you off there i was oh, just no was no like, you're fine i was yeah, hot no. on that thread because no it, i was gonna say continue me. doing your thing i was just it, it brings up a really good point that calvin was saying about humility and i was wondering if you see that kind of um, characteristic in some of the other companies or NGOs that are trying to like 
he was talking a lot about how there's a bunch of different organizations out there that are all trying to compete. It seems like they're trying to compete for one another in terms of who can be the best, you know, training or who can provide this kind of quality of thing. Do you think they have that kind of humility or do you think they try to have this, um, this kind of aura that they know everything. Hey, this is why you should go with us. We are the best of the best of the best. Like, do you see that kind of humility you in a lot of the other um, NGOs that are kind of just, I don't, I don't want to say pretending, but are trying to make a name for themselves? It's, um, it's difficult to give you a, a accurate presentation or an accurate sure. answer on that question because I myself haven't gone through these uh, training organizations and sure. uh, companies. But what I see from now, an outside perspective, uh, is you hit the nail on the head there saying that they're all competing for the business. They're mm -hmm. competing to get uh, numbers in. Uh, when we all started in the industry, there was one provider. That, that's it. There, there was nobody else to go to. And uh, they were the, uh, the industry leaders at the time. Since uh, conservation law enforcement has become such a popular topic, Obviously, there's people jumping on the bandwagon, and now there's five, six, seven, eight, twenty different providers globally. You'll find providers, you know, in in Europe, doing anti-poaching programs uh, run by Europeans. Not to say that they don't have some experience. Uh, that's the last thing that I'm saying is is that they they don't know what they're doing. Uh, but who would you rather learn from? People who've grown up and spent their life doing it, you know, on the ground or someone who's spent six months uh, and that's it, you know. Um, secondly, uh, when it comes to the competition and them competing for it, they're going to try and make it visually appealing. Mm -hmm. uh, so the boring things, Mike will know, Hein will know, you know, tracking yeah. 10 hours a day uh, just to get, you know, fucked up at the end of it by your instructors. That's mm -hmm. not fun, but that's probably going to make you a better ranger than learning to how to shoot a target at 800 meters because that skill has no use to us but yeah, it's a very irrelevant. attractive skill to show someone behind the scope of a rifle you know sure. um doing things like close quarter battle clearing through buildings uh, all the stuff which is visually attractive but let's be honest in your career if you do it you know twice in 10 years it's probably a lot uh so it is a fine balance and uh we're in a tough, tough time at the moment in the industry. Um, there, there, there aren't as many um, providers who have that humility um, as, as one would like to see. Um, but again, outside perspective, I haven't been to, I've, I've only done three different organizations that I've worked for and trained for. Um, and there are many others out there. Perhaps there's others out there that are doing a great job. And I, I, haven't had the luxury of working with them yet yeah yeah definitely um i think uh to, to to just continue on what calvin was saying there's a serious thing that uh that's happening or started happening in the industry as calvin said it, it there's a lot of people that want to enter into conserva uh, conservation conservation uh, the conservation industry and to get there you need to get some form of course behind your name so now you've got a lot of courses that popped up. Um, and again, um, for definitely, just as Calvin, not saying that all courses are bad and that all trainers don't know what they're doing, but there for sure are opportunistic people out there. Um, I, having 
quite a lot of friends in the industry that, that, are, that are still young guys that went through a lot of these courses uh, through academies that have have guys teaching these courses that, that has not done one anti-poaching patrol. Um, not one. It, it, it's, it, 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 obviously, it cannot make sense. It, it, there's no way that person can really teach you the details of what goes into it. He's never done it himself. He's never felt it. He's only maybe read it in a book and, and done some, uh, I would say, simulated part of it during training in some form of a bush. So that's definitely something that happens. And I mean, I think that it happens all across the world with different types of training because money is involved, as, as it was said. Um, but this is mostly um, from companies that are, are actually getting you to pay their money for local guys here and you go and do the training because you've got a passion for conservation and you're kind of stuck with this now. And, and the guys are really thrown to the wolves to choose a provider because they all have great advertising and, and stuff like that, but it doesn't mean they, they're getting a really good training. Um, and a big thing that's also happening now with that is if people are paying money for these courses, these training providers are very, very scared of actually failing someone that is not meeting these standards. And that is a really, really big problem. Um, in my opinion, uh, again, humbly, and I'm trying not trying to badmouth people, but you do get anti-poaching rangers that have very little idea of what they're doing and what their job requires of them. And it's a dangerous job. You can get killed by wild, wild animals, snakes, um, poachers. I mean, you can name it. There's very, very dangerous things that go into this job. And if you're not properly trained... And if you didn't meet the criteria to actually be an anti-poaching ranger, you shouldn't be one. You should maybe come back and try again until you meet the standards. And at the moment, we're sitting with problems where those standards are not being held up uh, to the to the level that they should be. Um, I, I'm pretty sure Calvin might have some oh, more yeah. input on that. I mean, that comes into so many other factors, like the end output again is they're a liability to themselves and others on the team. If you go back to the core structures of what Calvin was talking about, if you don't know how to do the basics, if you're not physically fit enough to move around in the bush and see what's happening, and you're not trained to visually identify what something out of order is by tracking means, by any sign of spore or sign, then you already are basically blind. And so you're a walking nuisance in some aspect. Um, Cal, exactly. I'll throw it back to you there. So I'll give a, a perfect example of this. Um, uh, we've all been in the field for, you know, 10 years plus. Uh, so between us, you know, we're looking at 30 years or more of uh, experience. And I'll ask the question, how many people, you don't have to have an answer, but it's a hypothetical question. How many people do we know that have been shot and killed by poachers? Uh, it's a very small number, you know, uh, very, very small. I'll ask the same question. How many people do we know that have been killed by animals while on duty? It's quite a large number. Yeah. A lot bigger than the number that have been killed by poachers. How much time do we spend teaching the Gucci ways of, you know, magazine changes and walk downs on targets? And how much time do we spend actually teaching these guys about big five, dangerous game approach, how to treat, treat dangerous game, how to defend yourself from dangerous game? A very, very small amount. Why? It's not sexy to see. Uh, people learning how to run away from elephants or climb trees or you shouldn't run away from elephants, by the way but uh <laughs> you, you know what i'm trying to say yeah. um, and that's uh 
the, the, the perfect example of, of where training is, is falling short. Uh, because unfortunately, uh, the firearm stuff, the cam and concealment stuff, um, that's all the stuff that's going to bring you uh, people to come and do your course. Uh, teaching guys, you know, proper track and sign identification, teaching guys how to read the bush, uh, teaching guys how to read animals' uh, behaviors and movements and, and how to uh, de-escalate tough situations with um, the big five is probably, you know, 5% of the course. Um and, and that's the problem, you know, again, we'll, we'll go into the first aid side of things. And uh, a lot of people fall short there, you know, uh, we spend time on, uh, on, on, on wounds, which are, you know, very, very unlikely to, to incur, um, where you're talking about, you know, C-spine injuries and, mm. um, broken bones and splinting and shock, um, are, are massive things, you know, which, which are brushed over. Um, because unfortunately, again, when it comes to, to funding and organizations willing to give funding, you know, it's very boring uh, saying your money is going to get spent on teaching guys how not to get stood on by a rhino. You know, um, it's, it's very uh, entertaining. <laughs> but it if, if you tell them that it's going to go towards, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know where I'm going with this. It's just, um, it's just an example of, of how the industry is falling short. And um, rangers are paying the price at the end of the day. Uh, yeah. That's just something that needs to be um, looked at from an external point of view. And, and, and these, these organizations need to realize that um, there's many levels to this. You know? There's the, yeah. This comes back to like a core factor too in, in what a ranger's actual job is. Before rhino poaching became what it is now, where you're still, I'd say... I'd say 1% to 2 maybe, I don't know. You guys tell me what you think on this too, my assessment here. 1%, 2 or 3% chance of actually catching a poacher inside the reserve where the, I would say, 95 to 97% chance is on the road, on the way in, on the way out, or at a, at a different location completely where you're going to actually catch them. Um, the game for the ranger itself, the actual job, is still conservation. And conservation itself still comes back to a core foundation of habitat, ecology, biodiversity, and the wildlife. And when rangers can't even identify key species of venomous snakes, um, key bird species, um, key lesser mammal species, um, and they don't know the basics within that realm, there's, I, in my opinion, there's a falling short there too because that's actually what they're there to protect and that's actually what they're there to assist. And I think in some of the daily job aspects, um, we've also pigeonholed uh, anti-poaching units and we see attrition and, you know, guys leaving cause they get bored and they're sold a glory or I shouldn't say they're sold. Some feel like there's a glory side to it and they get bored, but if they dialed it back into nature and conservation with the security presence, their diversity in their daily job would be a lot more engaging to them because they would be engaged by literally everything happening in the reserve naturally, which is, I know what draws us into the bush because we like the bush for the bush. Um, but then being ready for the level of threat that is possible is always necessary when you're in that security realm. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one thing that we've all started to see too is, is like, um, some of the coolest people in the industry that we've mentored with were those that could stop and point out the insect and the time of the year it comes out 
or the bird and its alert call or a primate doing a specific thing or the elephants and the seasonal display of a behavior. You know, there's so many little things that happen with it, but that comes back to the actual conservation side of the job, which gets overlooked because everybody wants to look at holding the gun in the Gucci kit. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And, and uh, this also comes down to um, what I've said uh, quite a few times um, in my life to people is I, I don't agree with the, I would say maybe the marketing aspect of saying that the conservation efforts of anti-poaching of a uh, rhino poaching, pangolin poaching, abalone poaching, whatever you want to have it is a war. Um, people talk about the, 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 the poaching war uh, that's raging in Africa. Um, and I, I think you find it maybe a lot on on, on uh, maybe some TV shows, some documentaries, stuff like that. They, they militarize the whole thing. And I think that comes down to a, you're, you're going to attract that type of person that thinks, wow, well, this looks like a kind of a type of war I see myself as a bit of a soldier and I want to have that action and stuff like that. And they focus solely on that aspect, which mm-hmm. is, it is a serious law enforcement issue, uh, but you still do need um, a lot of the conservation side. If you're not comfortable to be in the bush, if you don't enjoy uh, being in nature, if you don't like animals, if, if you don't have the ability to enjoy the noises of the animals at night then you will get bored and and you're gonna you're gonna be leaving very soon and you won't be back you 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 won't see that person and they'll they'll probably end up somewhere else and and feeling a bit disillusioned and i think that's the important part of it here is to say that this it's it's not a war it is still a conservation effort and anti-poaching ranges and anti-poaching units are, are absolutely critical for it to to actually start well trying to get onto a point where we're really not losing all of these animals anymore um if you think about it from the aspect of if you get the right ranges you can get them from well this is how 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 i know gcf does it and and mike mike and robert i know that you guys are very very much well aware of these techniques and stuff but for your listeners to get local community members on your side to to employ people from the area that they work in the anti-poaching unit and and making sure that they understand what they're doing have the best training available to them um, and then going back to the community giving the being able to put that money that they get paid back into that community and um, kind of spreading the word there that it's not worth it to poach, that it's maybe better for them to see how can we get income from another uh, part of this, a tourist and stuff like that. The direct um, connection there. Yeah. The actual direct connection. Important. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's a different type of, uh, of, of ranger. That These are usually not the guys that can pay for this training by themselves. This is directly where you guys come in with gcf and the funding where it's so so very very important to to give us the opportunity through your funding with gcf to train these rangers and then get them to actually have a stable job um, which i know is everything that gcf is busy doing uh, getting the guys trained getting the best trainers possible uh, in to do it for them and then actually doing your best to at least subsidize the salary of these guys so that they can stay and make it a career 
and uh, get the communities to move away from poaching and more into conservation. I think there's a big topic there that's great to, to hit for the everyday listeners is a lot of people don't understand, um, at least in general conversation or presentations, that anti-poaching costs money. Um, it costs reserves money, national parks money. And where the budget comes from is either if you're a private game reserve, those private lodges are usually have a conservation levy and they're putting forth to pay those rangers. And so things like COVID are extremely detrimental where they lose entire bed night stays and they lose the, the ability to employ the rangers. And then there's the other side of it, which is the national parks where they have government funding, but they're also, they have their own, you know, can of worms to deal with and what's affecting them. Um, the, the big thing in conservation that is commonly overlooked is like, someone always wants to offer again, the sexy item, like mm -hmm. the drone, uh, some type of military equipment or some type of like high speed technology. But the, the beginning of conservation has to change on the ground. And if the functional guys on the ground can't do the basic jobs, then who responds to the drones SOS call anyways? And I mean, there's all these factions and then you look at cost uh, effectiveness, employing local community guys as rangers is cost effective and it is not cost prohibitive versus buying a 2.5 million US dollar drone that isn't going to be able to legally fly there anyways. Mm -hmm. um, it might have a $40,000 camera on it and that's literally two patrol vehicles or I don't know, 10 guys salaries for an entire 10 month sp span. Um, there's, there's a big gap in some of that too, where um, we see it in the NGO world. Everybody wants to offer a solution, but they don't want to understand the ground effort again and why conservation has to benefit the community. So it doesn't alienate them. Um, Cal, I see you, you pop your hand up there. You got plenty yeah. of experience in this. I think um, touching on, on the whole story with the drone, it's, it's a very good uh, way to describe what we, we're trying to get at you. And I think we were very fortunate enough, um, you know, going back seven, eight years now. Uh, we, we had some of the first drones in the area, didn't we, Mike, sponsored by Global Conservation <laughs> Force. Yeah, we and, tried out um, quite a few styles. Yeah, well, that we, we were involved with the very first um, trials of, of how do you effectively utilize drones in a conservation uh, setting. And they were massively beneficial, but not in the ways that people thought they would be. Uh, we used them to locate um, rhino calves that are, the, the mother had been poached and the calf had moved off. Moved off, and um, that that really worked. You know, uh, we tried to use them as deterrents. You know, we would attach like weird color lights and flashing things and it fly them over in an area exactly, and spread a bit of disinformation. You know, uh, and and try to get it out there that these things have a lot better uh, capabilities than they actually did. Uh, but the one thing that they weren't good for, which is what everybody thought that they were good for, was finding poachers. Because this is not Afghan, this is not Iraq, this is not the desert. This is akin to anything that you would try and describe to someone who's never been to the thick bush of South Africa. Is It's a jungle. And you can imagine flying a drone over a jungle, all you see is canopy. And that's majority of what you see in, in South Africa, in the areas where we're working in. And to, to put a drone on top of a poacher, you have to know where that poacher is. Then people talk about thermal cameras. There's animals in the bush. 
You know, there's fucking millions of them. So there's just little red blots everywhere. So your thermal camera is useless. And also it's 45 degrees in the day. So the entire ground is white hot. It, it's, it's, it's very limited, but there, there were, there were, there was scope, scope, sorry, t- to utilize them. Problem was we did that seven years ago. They're still trying to get drones in now. There's still organizations trying to bring them in to catch poachers. There's multi-million dollar uh, projects running in our national parks, which are a waste of time and money. I think that thing has found one poacher and they could see them with their eye before they put the drone up. Um, this is a very good example of where being there, done that, got the t-shirt, but it's still the Gucci item and it's still being run for fundraised for. So, And there's a threshold and cost there. We didn't go past the threshold of, I think it was $3,500. We were crafting drones that were designed to be light enough to be in a backpack or in a like the center console of a, a Bucky and released and seeing what the eyes and the distance could do because batteries have been an issue. And at the end of the day, we realized wildlife monitoring and even wildlife relocation, like pushing elephants back into a fence line or rhinos away from a fence line, that was the benefit but again, to get to the cost that you need to be effective with you actually seeing that drone, or sorry, seeing successes with that drone, you start hitting the couple hundred thousand to million dollars US mark, and you've lost the reality of application there already because now you're, instead of putting funding into conservation where the guys simply just need quad bikes and a, a patrol bucky and they need boots and uniforms and proper training, they're saying, well, yeah, but they have a drone. They don't need that. And they're losing the ability to do the actual job they need to do in some areas because millions of dollars are going into a weird funnel in a different direction. Sorry, Robert, you had something to say there too. Um, Yeah, no, I was just, it's just interesting to hear you guys all talk about it. And I know Heinz talked about it before about how it's not a, it's not a war, right? And, you know, Calvin was mentioning it too. There seems to be this disconnect between, I think, what people, especially like in the Western areas, like America and Europe, think what's really going on versus like what their misconception of it, right? Because due to social media, due to the packages of people wanting the Gucci tactical reloads, they want to learn how to clear buildings. It it does seem like the, and and I've absolutely experienced this before, and you guys can please take the lead, but it seems like the Rangers' most powerful weapon is education. Their anti-poaching rangers is the most powerful weapon is education, education in the community, education of wildlife. You, like Calvin had mentioned that nobody wants to spend 10 hours tracking, but that's ultimately, that's the big thing right there. You know, it's, it's, I would love to get your guys' take on this. There's, there's that aspect. And, um, with, with what you see with every time in the U S because of the same aspects of like what you were just talking about, Robert, most mm-hmm. of the time, whenever we start a presentation, I have to work past all the preconceived dye the rhino horn pink um, put the drone in the air buy them a ferrari uh mentalities and it it takes me 30 minutes to get to the initial point because i'm backtracking so many questions that have come out of this uh, i think people with good intentions but sure bad field application and knowledge but yeah that's the downside of social media right you you show what you want to present and it's not like the real actuality this comes into the category that i'll launch with your question Mm -hmm. there is no silver bullet yeah there is no one single thing because i can guarantee you we would have all loved to have had that (laughs) defined and loaded and gone because i can tell you i'm tired after doing this for 
over a decade trying to fundraise and train rangers and stuff. Um, not that I don't want to still do it, but if there was a silver bullet, man, I'd be putting all my effort there. Yeah, I always uh, liken it to uh, having a toolbox. You know, if, if we're an engineer or a plumber or, or whoever it was, you don't just have a Leatherman in your toolbox. And even a Leatherman is technically a multi-tool, but you, you, you don't have just one tool. You've got a range of tools. You've got one tool which you use the most, and you've got one tool which you use the least. What you don't have is a tool that you never use. You might have it for the first year when you don't know how to do the job, but after that first year, you'll know I've never picked this thing up and you'll throw it away. Unfortunately, in conservation law enforcement, we still have a toolbox with a lot of tools that we never use, but it still gets taught. And they're uh, shiny. And they're shiny. Oh, exactly. They they're shiny and they look so nice. Uh, you know, we take a team of eight men and we teach them fire and maneuver. Alpha, move, Bravo, move, fight up and down the fucking thing. And honest to God, if you can show me one ranger in South Africa that's ever done fire and movement, you know, I will give you, I can't say what I'll give you, but I'll chop it off and I'll give it to you, you know. Uh, it's a family show. Uh, but there's a lot of tools in these toolboxes which are useless. Drones have a use. It's a tool in the toolbox, you know. The rifle and the tactics behind it, it's a tool in the toolbox. The Education is a tool in the toolbox. Going out into the communities, educating communities, it's a massive tool in the toolbox. Uh, we need to figure out which tools work, which ones don't, which ones make other ones irrelevant and continuously update this. You know, we've been doing this for a long time now. We need to relook at our programs, relook at our training and think what is no longer relevant, what is relevant that we're not training, put them all together and build the best toolbox that we can possibly do from our experience that we have collectively. I think that's yeah. where we're at now too, which is the cool thing is there in the beginning of all this, it was like um, a flash in a pan where everybody was scrambling to gather resources, make a plan, try to uh, stave off the bleeding because how many rhinos were dying a day. Um, I mean, there were days where we were on three or four carcasses um, or we were literally up for multiple days chasing multiple groups and multiple incursions and backtracking and, and, and follow through and doing all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And now with all the years at hand and all the experience, I think the one thing that's been really cool is we have, we've, we've run multiple courses. We've run multiple styles of courses. We've run courses in multiple countries. Um, we've dialed what's relevant. We've dialed, um, how to make that digestible to grants now um, we're finally getting grants for ranger training which is like insanely impossible um because no one understood for the longest time why ranger training mattered because everybody else was selling billboards and commercial spots and and i swear we we gcf lost um to grant applications to billboards and and 30 second ad commercials of and i the, the count the conservation output line was awareness and i'm just like if we don't win it on the ground we lose it all it doesn't matter how aware you are at the end of the day and i can tell you whenever i've driven past the billboard i don't remember it um you know so there's all these other factors coming in and it's really nice like this last uh tour of training uh just being able to catch up with hein for so long and you know in the past it'd be me and cal but we've all gotten so busy it's so hard to like actually sometimes get a collective measure together but where we're all at now is we are again consistently refining we've never once picked up something and applied it and said the end 
um, we've always sat back every single day after a course and every single uh, finale, every time we finish a course and said, what could we do better? Where do we need to improve? How do we scope this better for selections, content, education, placement, uh, instructors involved? And now it's really cool because when we have these big kind of longer discussions, the more serious, the output is significantly increased. We see it. Um, we see it in the return of what the Rangers are able to do. We see it in the return of what the Rangers uh, achieve in their daily scope of coursework. Um, we see it in the end output because we're now, uh, uh, Cal stepped out for just a second, but I wanted to throw him a big compliment. In some of our past courses, we've put Rangers on reserves who had never physically caught poachers. And now that's becoming a regular where recruits of our courses who have passed are the they're the leaders in their own units in some capacity because of their skills. And they're actually this first success to make arrests. That's what we should be seeing. Mm -hmm. That's where we should be seeing the needle push. Um, Pine, I saw your hand pop up in there. You got, you got some good stuff yeah. to throw in this one for sure. I, 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 I agree with you 100%. And um, your compliment to Calvin, I think it's, it's very, very, uh, I would say justified towards him uh, for providing that training. And it comes down to providing the correct training, the, the right stuff for the job and not compromising, uh, not dropping your standards. When a guy fails, he fails. When he passes, he passes. And I think that's super important. And I think coming back to what you said, there's, there's so much funding for what you explained, things being like billboards, awareness, uh, stuff like that. Um, I understand there's a lot of different uh, funding streams and uh, different areas of funding, and that's fair. Uh, it's needed. Awareness in South Africa, <clears throat> if, if you are going to get a grant in South, uh, uh, an American NGO, going to get a grant for South Africa to put up big billboards to say, stop uh, rhino poaching, you are effectively just putting up a big billboard that could literally just be blank because everybody in South Africa knows we've got a massive rhino poaching problem. It's a national feeling. People do care about it and it is a waste of money to try and create more awareness in this country. The people that will do something is where. And further on that note is South Africans, especially with what's going on in our economy, what's going on with what happened during COVID and stuff like that, do not have the like money or funding needed to effectively combat this problem on a private uh, capacity from from people that's I'm talking about your your normal South Africans living in the cities they're doing their jobs they're, they're trying to they want to do good but they don't have the money to fund all of these things they don't have the money to fund proper ranger training um, and salaries for rangers and stuff like that um, and I think that's important to, to, to actually say because if it, it if you if 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 you're going to be donating towards only awareness or stuff like that, uh, stuff that's not actually going to um, get proper education within the local communities around the big reserves with rhinos, and pro and 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 
if you're not going to be donating to programs that's creating jobs for those communities, i.e. Uh, anti-poaching ranges within the actual reserves, because it doesn't help to just give a random job. You need to actually get these people involved with their natural resources. Um, that That's where you have to, to, to look at. So, I mean... In the end, if 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 I would say it like this, Mike, if your listeners would would want to make a difference, I think it would be to actually have a change of heart and start looking at maybe the difficult thing of realizing you need to put some boots on the ground, uh, you need to have some ranges, and you need to have those education programs as opposed to awareness. Um, I think that's the that's the biggest thing that 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 I wanted to take from that conversation. Yeah, just to, to add on top of what you said there, Hein, which is 100% correct. And I think you've um, unknowingly voiced what my opinion is on how best for us to combat rhino poaching. And uh, for myself, it's, it's a two-tier system. And you've got to look at rhino poaching like organized crime because that's, that's what it is. And uh, how do you combat organized crime? You've always got a sliding scale of risk versus reward. And... Uh, all that needs to happen is the risk of committing the crime needs to be higher than the reward given. Okay, so we know how to fix the problem now. What we have to do is make the risk higher than the reward. Okay, how do we do that? How do we make the risk higher? That's the boots on the ground, law enforcement. Okay, we need to have more rangers who are trained, dedicated and motivated in the right area at the right time with the right equipment. Okay, that's, that's, it's that simple. Okay, that's that side of it done. The risk is up. How do we make the reward lower? All right, very hot topic. Is this uh, legalizing the trade of rhino horn to try and rush the value down? Is this by spreading our information projects out there overseas, the Asian continents, uh, to the consumers to let them know what they're doing is necessarily not just buying a rhino horn, but they're funding, you know, um, massive crime in, in, in the African continent. Uh, but it, it's not... It's not as overcomplicated as everyone has now made it become. Risk versus reward. We need the risk to be greater, the reward to be less. All we need to focus now is how do we greater that risk, whether it's the boots on the ground, like I said, or whether it's putting better fence lines in. You know, is it early detection? Is it funding your informants? Uh, but we need to make the risk greater than the reward. And then what will happen is those criminals will go to a different crime, a crime which isn't affecting our conservation, which isn't affecting our nature. Yes, cash in transit's wrong. Yes, uh, you know, bank robberies, hijacking, whatever. Uh, but everyone has their war. Well, we're not calling it a war anymore. Everyone has their battle to fight. Um, and as long as they're not in my turf, you know, um, let them let them be the, the, the special task force problem for cash in transit, you know. Well, I think, and that goes into a, another simple category, if we continue to break into the local rural regions and they see wildlife as the reward for their income, their sustainability, and their stability of their region, for example, it causes their it, it benefits their employment, it benefits their school uh, children's education programs and funding, and 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 that adds to the sliding scale because it's brought them something again in organized crime. I think. You look at every area that has severe organized crime and there's always a tie to poverty and or access to certain resources and someone controlling those resources and making it a value of some sort or the other. So if we look at some of the simple things and 
it's a hard it's a hard absolute, but it's a very similar type of detail. We in the U.S. Uh, have had the drug war, and the cartels have had endless power because Americans are buying the same drugs that we're fighting. And we fuel our own system of supply and demand and fighting and the risk and the reward and everything like that. And some of the more baseline factors that have impacted that one is in the independent user, is it worth taking X, Y, or Z and funding X, Y, or Z? And the, the risk, again, of getting caught and busted. But then also the devaluation of the entire process in some countries in Europe, for example, which have just decriminalized it. And there's legal access route. And you can see things like that in the timeline of the prohibition in the United States. We made Al Capone who he was by making illegal or alcohol legal. Um, we made Pablo Escobar massively famous and rich because of the demand issues with cocaine and the markets and selling. If we can crack the same similar codes, again, impacting poverty risk and reward in the tie-in of the two. And not to say you can't, this is the other thing, I, you can't always put it on poverty because people will use that one as um, an excuse, I would say, um, because there's also going to be criminals, again, who take advantage. The criminals may not be the impoverished ones. There's white-collar crime in this. There are guys who are sitting at the backside of lodges or used to um, sit in all forms of different layers of life who are manipulating the chess plays so that they can use the ones on the ground, like poachers, for example, who would technically be the pawns, um, to be their fall guys for this bigger chain of mass product supply, uh, which has obviously got a big payout at the end. Um, and so it comes back again if we talk about ranger training. Ranger training is one of the most valuable things that positively impacts all of those categories in one go um, versus... Hey, I bought somebody a drone, you know, it was $250,000 you're like, and then you just, I have like a miniature stroke because I'm just like, Oh my God, you know, um, the things that could have been fixed with that money. Um, and then you have NGOs that are excited about, you know, X, Y, or Z, um, again, and it's, they, they, they want a simple solution. They want it to be fast and easy. They don't want to take the time to put the effort in to be in the field. Or they think they found one person who, again, is the multi-tool or the silver bullet and comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, Robert, I mean, you, you've, you've come into this with each one of us at different stages, being with all of us at different phases. Yeah. I'm sure in the reflection of the road starting from when you were doing journalism for um, some of the U.S. NGOs not related mm -hmm. at all versus seeing the scale of things from our Asian project projects to our South African projects. I mean, what is, what is some of the started commonality you've seen? It's, it's funny you say that because it's, it's that whole, like, I don't want to say like Western influence, but it's that whole, like what people like, like, it's the weirdest thing. People always think there's like this easy fix. And like Calvin's saying, like you were saying, you know, like all of us, there's no like right answer. And I've, I've met South Africans on the airplane and they're like, oh, we'll just make rhino poaching legal. And I've met uh, my friend on Wednesday said, oh, we'll just dye all the horns pink. Like there's not just like, oh yeah, you, you just got to do this and that's the answer. And it's, it's so interesting to see the the disconnect between people who aren't involved in the conservation world and the people who are, who are in it. Right. So, I mean, all you three all collectively have 
more experience than I think I have ever I would ever be able to begin to grasp. And you guys are like, oh, there's no answer. There's no right answer. It's a multitude, a fastitude of different small term goals that are going to get us there versus the the random person on the airplane or in the airport that's just like, oh, yeah, just just do that. Like, you know, that's super simple. And it, it's really interesting to hear you three um, kind of go back like, OK, this is how I, this is how we can improve. This is how we get better. This is how we can fix it. And I think the coolest thing about it is that you guys are always looking to improve. Right. And I think maybe that's something that a lot of people, especially stay in the States that just don't seem to, there's just this disconnect, I guess would be the answer. The, the short answer to my long explanation is that there's this disconnect between what people think is going on and what's actually happening. You know, um, it's, it's really interesting like that. And I mean, um, I honestly don't, uh, blame people for that. Um, mm -hmm with uh, a lot of, again, <clears throat> awareness campaigns and stuff. And, and what we've uh, been saying is that uh, a lot of the, 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 I would say the rhetoric that comes out is that, again, this is a war that's revolving around the horn mm -hmm. that, and that's it. So we have people that want to attack an asset and then steal it and take it to another country. That's, the gist of it, yes, that's what people get, but they don't understand always the really the deeper side, the nuances of this thing, of that it is, as Calvin said, it's it's syndicate-based crime. It's it's not just rhino poaching. It's 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 much more than that. It's rhino poaching combined with abalone poaching, combined with. Uh, pangolin uh, poaching and weapons trafficking we exactly it, it really gets big and there's a lot of um organized crime organized uh, well you know crime organizations if i could say it like that that do get involved in this and there's a lot of gangs locally within south africa and syndicates and they all work together from different parts and they link up with international criminal organizations from vietnam china uh east Bloc countries um to, to name a few and it really is a bigger thing than what people make it out to be mm -hmm. and i don't blame them for not understanding that because with awareness campaigns that i understand is so very expensive uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and a little bit of a waste of money in my opinion all that people see is there's a war on the animals and they need to save this rhino horn and that's as easy as it is legalize this rhino horn to be traded and everything will be fine um that's obviously a debate that i i'm definitely not going to go into now and i think there's a, people that are much more qualified than me to have that debate but it is not just a clear cut legalize and you will have the same effect as what you've seen with some of the um some of the the the, the states uh, i believe on your side that's legalized uh, uh drugs um it, it's not necessarily going to solve the problem what do you think Al? really good point i think um you've, you've touched on something which is you know super relevant and and mike's also hit that same nail on the head where he likened it to what was happening in South America with the cocaine cartels and the drug cartels. Uh, and if we dive deeper into that, uh, to some extent, they were doing more for the communities than the governments were. The poor communities were massively benefiting uh, from the money that cocaine, whether it was the people who were growing the coca leaves, 
whether it was the employment that it made from security or just the the, the fruits of, of their fruition and, and the money coming into the communities. They provided security. They provided the amenities that the government couldn't. And a very similar situation arose out of the rhino poaching uh, syndicates in South Africa, where the very poor communities in Mozambique and bordering the Kruger National Park were actually having a false economy created around rhino poaching. And all of a sudden, banks were popping up, car dealerships were popping up, roads were getting tarred. Um, and then there was all of a sudden a massive influx of money. Uh, the restaurants in the areas were doing better. And there was a massive Robin Hood vibe where they were stealing from the rich, giving to the poor. And those communities had never benefited from conservation before. And in a very twisted way, all of a sudden, they were benefiting from conservation because the conservation efforts in that area meant there was proliferation. Plur- uh, plur- <laughs> fucking hell. Robert, make me sound smart. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of rhino. There was a lot of rhino in the area. And uh, all of a sudden, a lot of rhino means a lot of rhino poaching means a lot yeah. of money. And the communities, it was in their best efforts to protect these rhino poachers because it was a constant stream of money coming in. And that's, again, where the whole uh, education side of things come into it. And we need to figure out ways of how do we get these communities, especially the boundary communities, to benefit from rhinos and benefit from conservation in general, whether that's every cent that comes in from foreigners, you know, a percentage of that goes towards the community whether it's the reserves starting to build their schools up, you know, whether it's the reserves starting to give them actual infrastructure that they can use, build better roads, supply uh, fresh drinking water, uh, whatever the case may be. This is well outside of my um, field of expertise, but we do need to somehow make conservation not just a Western rich person's game and make it everybody's game. And the Africans need to benefit from Africa's wildlife. And, and that's just another completely different ballgame in itself. There's a massive level of context in here, too. Um, when, so, like, a lot of these communities that benefited most from the surge of rhino poaching, they don't have flushing toilets. They don't have electricity. They don't have insulated walls. They're mud-thatched in some of the areas of Massangir. Um, the roads are dust. Um, their schools are very 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 informal um so when you get a lifeline that changes your total life luxury balance you don't want to let it go readily and you can understand that because of how complex it is um this actually throws me back into a memory calvin and i in 2015 crossed into mozambique and we're um kind of doing a couple of different things but part of it was collecting information and um we went to a specific town plaza where the rhino poachers would come in and do a donut in the big circle of town. And the town would actually cheer them on because they came into town with a rhino horn. That's, and these are, these were poachers coming into their hometown or the town of where the local boss was or bosses were, depending on how you define the tears and the community and their excitement was celebrating that rhino horn delivery and you have to all of a sudden you come back and when you look at that and then you look at um hey i spent ten thousand dollars on a billboard you realize how ridiculous that is real quick because you realize the big disconnect because what could ten thousand dollars have done for that community you probably could have put every single child through school 
and at school included food for their their three meals a day or two meals of the three while they're there and even a school program like soccer which they all love so there's there's this big context too of like um you know that comes back into like what we were talking about like with the cartels and how certain areas start to benefit the poacher's false economy and so on and so on but um yeah i love i love the context of that because it really helps um, folks who haven't been to those um, rural communities or areas heavily affected by we'll say heavily affected by rhino syndicates um positive negative because there's a negative side to it as well um you know there obviously there's the other sides of you know, now you're in it for good. Now you're part of the family. Now you're doing the job. Now you're going to do the job. Take the gun yeah. and go. Um, there's coercion in that as well. Um, Hein, you got a you got a comment there? Yeah, um, I think saying that, uh, and we uh, you you can you can really bring this conversation uh, full circle to 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 where we started. Um, what you're talking about now directly comes back to. Putting the funding in the in the correct area, um, and it comes back to anti poaching. In a small sense, there's 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 obviously there's a much bigger sense to things: building schools, getting education. Uh, there's other ways. The tourism industry uh, that 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 you can get. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, a better livelihood for people in in these rural communities because. You must remember these are not all bad people. They, they, the majority of people living there are good people, and That's if you would give them, me. if you would give them a proper opportunity, they would take it to have a better life, but do it in a lawful way that's safe and they can just be happy. So that, for me, comes back to anti-poaching. On these farms. Or I would say reserve. Sorry, that's just me being a second language uh, uh, English speaker. Um, on these reserves, you you have things that attract tourists, and these things are interesting animals. And these animals are under threat of going, you know, going extinct. That would mean that the tourist industry would dry up in South Africa, which is one of our biggest uh, and, and not only in South Africa but in Africa and other parts of the world and in many of these countries and in South Africa it's one of our biggest income streams um, it's very important now if you can imagine that that dries up all of the reserves and everything that goes together with having tourists from for instance the United States coming here would disappear all of that funding and income and everything that goes to these communities would just disappear. These people would would not have any livelihood. So it's definitely in their best interest to protect these animals. So if we can give them that opportunity, they would do it. And that's why I'm, I'm bringing it full circle back to anti-poaching. If you can employ young men and women on these reserves and give them proper training, it is a form of education, in conservation and insecurity and they can protect this animal that is bringing in this tourists and with that their mothers their sisters they get employed as the cooks the cleaners the drivers the game guides um, the maintenance staff the managers on these reserves you can see how it's all coming back to the community where they're actually getting the benefit out of this and 
you're actually starting to solve the problem one step at a time with a smaller part of it. And obviously, as always, there's more aspects to it, but it is a very effective aspect. And that's what, I, as I'm saying, if the funding goes to the right place, i.e. conservation that comes from the from the, the right communities, you're well on your way to start solving some problems here. Um, and that really speaks on what you were just saying, Mike. Yeah, this... Um... I mean, I 100% agree. Um, I was going to say with this, there's um, a whole other category of things, but I know Calvin had a comment to throw in there and I saw Robert itching to ask a question. So I'm going to, I'm going to pass the torch oh, yeah. actually. So uh, first things first, proliferation. Okay. I can say <laughs> All right. Now that I've uh, regained my dignity somewhat, I'll another sip of my beer and I'll carry on. Impossible. <laughs> All right. Um, I think what what's important here, and uh, you cannot only concentrate on the education side of things, mm-hmm. where a lot of organisations do, because they're slightly afraid of the over militarization of anti poaching, which is a very well founded uh, fear. And yeah. uh, you can't only concentrate on the uh, anti poaching ranges, because the simple fact is. A average person in South Africa who's below the poverty line will never benefit from conservation. It's a tiny percentage who live on the boundaries of the reserves. Majority of these people are living in informal settlements such as Guguletu, uh, Side 5, Masipumalele. It's, it's areas which will never, ever, ever benefit from conservation. And by giving uh, all these benefits to the neighboring communities you will create greed and you will create jealousy and there will always be people who are willing to poach so that is not the answer it's definitely a tool in the toolbox but it's not the answer you will always need the trained motivated equipped rangers on the ground and you cannot say that they are not necessary because there are far too many organizations out there who are leaning far too much in one direction saying We can't arm rangers, we can't train them, we can't teach them how to kill. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's necessary. Unfortunate, but it's necessary. I'm not saying that uh, this is what we want, and I wish more than anything that rangers didn't need guns, and I wish they didn't have to be taught the hard lessons, and I wish they didn't have to be counseled in the fact that they possibly do have to take somebody's life, but that is the bottom line of it. To be fair, so... It, it is very necessary to defend their own lives. Exactly, exactly. But there seems to be more and more of a push on let's just educate these people. Let's not teach these rangers self-defense. Let's not teach these rangers these uh, these skills which they'll need to, to look after themselves. So uh, just hammering it down that education is highly important, but education alone will not end this. Yeah, that comes back just like you said. There's no silver bullet, and this is this yeah. comes back a step again. You know, in each category of conservation, there's not one category of conservation that is the silver bullet as well. It's again another toolbox at a different layer. So you look at uh, community-based conservation efforts, education, counter wildlife trafficking, um, the legislative legislative branch. So like everything from training attorneys properly to magistrates properly to um, proper defense councils for rangers and laws getting caught up to speed to actually address the different things that are happening. I mean, it's not just for the American listeners. 
it's not illegal in every state to purchase wildlife products. Um, it is a federal crime to buy anything that's under CITES um, 1 or 2, but it isn't necessarily a major crime. So you could potentially buy a rhino horn or an ivory tusk in certain states and get a, a non-serving sentence and a fine of $10,000, which is crazy. So, you know, there's a lot of catch-up that has to happen. Again, it comes back to a collective toolbox. Um, no one single silver bullet. And that is, to Calvin's uh, point, it's actually really scary. We have hit that sometimes where people are like, well, why don't you guys work harder in the education factor and then no one has to carry guns? And it's like, well, that's just not how criminals behave. Um, yeah. And that comes into a can of worms with so many different things. But that's honestly fairy tale land talk. Uh, it's not the reality. They're so far removed from the reality at that point. Um, I know Hein and I had some conversations about people who sit outside of the danger thresholds, who sit outside of the reality, who try to impose changes on other people who get directly affected by set, such things. Um, yeah. And then those people, I don't want to generalize, but basically some people just don't live too much. In, they don't live enough in the reality to understand the scope of reality that is necessary to combat sure. what's happening. Yes, yes. Um, that's, I, I guess, agree. the cleaner way to say it. I would say I, I agree with you on that, Mike. And, uh, you know, I feel, you know, it, it, it is, uh, in my opinion, personally, a phenomenon that you can see uh, a lot um, in, our, in our societies in the world today where you have individuals, organizations or people that just, they have an opinion and that's their opinion and that is the alpha and omega where mm -hmm. they do have... Um, you know, touch points for information, such as yourself, such as Robert, such as other members from GCF and other NGOs and people that do understand the situations, pulling it directly back to uh, conservation within Africa and South Africa specifically, that they could listen to. And I do understand that it sometimes is very difficult to convince these people that there is a different way of doing things than what they see it as. Um, and I think a, a, a good example would be what Calvin named earlier. We do need to arm rangers. They do need to have firearms. We do need to teach them how to use it properly, mm -hmm. how to, in some circumstances, uh, what we would call neutralize a threat, stop a, a, a deadly attack on your life. Uh, and that does include shooting people if you need to defend your life it's it it might not be nice for some people to hear um and it might not be easy for them to accept but as a reality it does happen in in this side of the world with that type of job and for a good reason you must remember it's not that that person's just walking around there with a gun he's protecting a critically endangered animal animals actually and also the livelihood of the greater community surrounding this the, the reserve that that would specifically be in question here so with that it, it it is difficult for me to sometimes accept that people do not want to accept those facts um because i do know there's a lot of people that would say no don't arm rangers and uh, robert you know like paint the horn pink and it, it is an ignorant thing to say when you when you're sitting on the ground and you're seeing how rhinos are being poached um, 
this year specifically, we had quite a lot of rhino poached in a very, very short time. It was specifically the time that, that Mike was actually in country uh, this side. Um, it, it just happened. Coincidence. Oh, uh, <laughs> this is the inside man. <laughs> Mike, is, is, is this all just a ruse? This is, this is very, very elaborate, man. I, I mean, went through a really elaborate plan, guys. The very... whole thing was to like work for like 10 plus years off the of payroll and to like just put myself in the debt so that I could actually get a return on it, you know, yes, in a yes, different way. Of course. Yeah, that's great. Great plan, bro. Great plan. So, yeah, it, 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 it is difficult to to know that people have those opinions um while the reality on the ground is what it is i think um yeah i mean but we push on i mean the one thing that's good is we've all established enough time and and anchors in the industry that we have found our survival even through gosh what i would say is arguably like the most financially trying time was COVID mm-hmm. for us. I mean, dude, that was just like kicking pillars out from underneath us, like left and right. Um, that's said to be what feels like on the other side of it now, more so, is a, a breath of fresh air. And then obviously just the the uh, the three of us still pushing in the directions together, I feel, um, I don't know, it's, it's always been nice to have you guys in my corner with me because I always feel like I have the right people to talk to at all times because so many other people who you ask them who they're talking to and you're wondering, where is this coming from? You know, everybody needs an echo chamber. Um, we can all politely disagree with each other and professionally disagree with each other. And we're all always asking each other, how can we be better and improve X, Y, and Z? None of us are stagnant. Um, and I think that's another thing is none of us like to be stagnant. Uh, which only provides a current solution and a better mm-hmm. solution every time because every time we are just making that blade a little bit sharper. You know, we're just we're just polishing and sharpening and we're keeping moving forward. And it's really important, especially in something like this, like if we were applying the same methods from 10 years ago, <laughs> I mean, sure, we could probably still get donations, but we'd still just... Uh, it would be a miserable outcome. I, I couldn't, I couldn't sit with myself with that. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of funny cause you have like these extreme courts, you have like the extreme disarm the Rangers and the extreme, um, courts of, yeah, there's an extreme court of everything, I guess. Uh, and, yeah. and yeah. Like, we bring everything back into the middle into the, the conscious reality, I guess, <laughs> versus like, Oh, it's just, uh, Let's just distribute pamphlets out of million-dollar drones, and the world will be fine. Um, you know. I think you know one of the, um, the bottom lines is uh, there's a saying that uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And yeah. uh, what, what everyone needs to do is just drop the egos, figure out where we've gone wrong, how we can better ourselves, how we can learn more, and how we can evolve to adapt uh, to this threat, which is constantly evolving. And whether that same uh, we've we've done wrong in the past, but we've learned from our mistakes, or learning from other people's mistakes, and and seeing where the ball's been dropped and where we could uh, pick it up better in the future, and, and that's the most important thing is just dropping that ego, having a bit of humility, and figuring out all right, how do we how do we finish this uh, finish this to the best of our ability, you know? Totally. And that's a wrap for episode one of season two. 
Tune back in with us for the second episode of season two with the campfire stories and some of the more comical behind the scenes stories with Hein, Calvin, Robert, and myself.